Dave Harvey does tell a story about the farmer many years ago, came into the big city, took his family to the department store, and while he's sitting there waiting for his wife to shop, he sees these kind of metal doors, and he watches, and this old bent-over woman goes in to the room with the metal doors, metal doors close, she disappears, and then about two minutes later, out comes a beautiful young woman, and he says to one of his kids, son, go call your ma." Wanted to put her in that little box and see what happened. Um, there, a, a typical scenario when people come in for counseling is the husband and the wife are sitting in front of us, and each one of them says, our marriage would be fine if he would change. Our marriage would be fine if she would change. And they each have an agenda about what needs to change. She needs to be more patient. He needs to be more... Uh, diligent, affectionate, whatever it might be. And the Bible does teach how you can change your spouse, not by nagging them, not by scolding them, but through the transforming grace of the gospel. And the gospel shows us how, and the Bible specifically says in Ephesians 5, we're going to spend most of our time in the next two sessions, And in 1 Peter chapter 3, God has specifically given instructions to you how you can be an instrument in changing your spouse. And part of this is in the context is is God has made marriage to be a blessing. God has made marriage to be an influence for your sanctification. That's not always easy. But you can be used of God in the sanctification of your spouse. But Many marriages are mistakenly based upon law. I will give to you in measure of what you give to me. But the key to success in marriage is grace. Back to the theme verse of the conference. The mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And the key to success in marriage is not some kind of external change of five practical things to do to make your spouse happy. But it's understanding the gospel. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And it's the love of Christ which is going to fill your love tank to be able to give out to others, especially your spouse, instead of waiting for them to fill your love tank. And in the context of Ephesians, Ephesians 5, I would like to point out, comes after Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and 4. And that's profound because when Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you've been paying attention, especially in the first three chapters, you've learned what love really looks like. And the love of a husband is to reflect the love of Christ. And if a man is failing to love his wife in a proper way, it's not just a matter of teaching him some techniques to put on his reminder list every week to buy her flowers and every two weeks to take her out on a date and somehow that's going to make it all good. But rather there's a need for inward change as he reflects upon Christ's love to him. He is able to reflect that love back to her. And if a man is failing to love his wife, it's not technique, but it's really that he's experiencing a gospel disconnect. Marriage failure is due to a gospel disconnect where on one level you know you're saved by grace through faith 
in Christ alone. You know God has shown you great mercy. But then like the unmerciful servant, you who have received such mercy, then deal with the other person according to law and not mercy. And judgment comes rather than grace. And so if you're failing in your marriage roles, or if your marriage is in trouble, the first place to begin is remembering what Christ has done for you. That is what is life life transforming. And so before lunch, we're going to talk about the application of that to the husband. Afterwards, it will be for our wives. And I've worked really hard at making this memorable for you. And in my outline, I've almost never in my life done this. I've got a memory device. Husbands, give your wife tulips. T-U-L-I-P. Some of you know that could have other meanings, but uh, to be totally committed to her in love, unconditionally sacrifice yourself for her, limit yourself to her alone, irresistibly draw her with a love that purifies, and persevere in meeting her every need. So this should help you. Are you giving your wife tulips or not? And actually use that to work our way through the passage. So Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Lord wants you to be totally committed in loving her, and it's a love which reflects the love of Christ. The world, when it uses the word love, and probably my main input for how the world looks at things is when I go to the gym and hear whatever music is popular, and the word love is used a lot in this music, it has nothing to do with love, the way they're describing it. You know, I love you, I want you tonight, but I may never see you again. That's not love. In first, in Second Samuel 13, in the tragic story of Amnon and Tamar, Amnon says, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Now he uses the word love, but it's really lust, it's passion. And when you get down later after he has raped her, he says, it says of him, the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And that's much of what the world does with love, what they call love. Love is a passion. I want your body, or you make me feel good, you do stuff for me. But when the passion fades, the love diminishes. If we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, his love is a gracious love. He loved you when you were unworthy. Romans 5, we're told God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so to love your wife as Christ has loved you, as Christ has loved the church, means you're committed to her good whether you think she deserves it or not. Now, when you chose your wife, you did the best you could, right? It's not like you say, well, go find the hardest woman you can. Only Hosea had to marry Gomer, right? It's not like go find someone like that, and you can really be Christ-like by marrying some hideous person. No, when you chose her, you did the best you could. Reasonable. You tried to find the person, ideally, who was most godly. But now that you've chosen your love, you're to love your choice because you made vows and made a covenant before God. It's not give and take. It's not, I'm going to treat you as well as you treat me. And it's also the fact that you need to realize, and we have people here who are not yet married, so I'm going to share some news with you. 
when you get married, you're going to find that you married a sinner. And no matter how wonderful it seemed to be before you were married, you do not yet know how sinful this person is or how sinful you are until you've been married for a while and you're in close quarters. And for marriage to succeed, you need grace. You chose based upon perceived merit, but you endure based upon covenant love, which reflects the love of Christ to you. Don't be surprised when she sins, when she doesn't meet all of your needs. And how does Jesus change you? Romans 2.4 says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God brought us to repentance and faith by grace, by showing us kindness we did not deserve. And so the calling of a husband is to astonish her with grace by treating her better than she deserves because that's how God has treated you. And just as God, for the sake of Jesus, when he looks upon you, Paul says in Philippians 3, you have a righteousness not of your own that comes from keeping the law, but the righteousness which comes from God based upon faith. And the gospel says that when God looks upon you, you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God looks upon you as if you had perfectly kept his law because Christ kept it for you and he shows you favor and blesses you, not based upon what you deserve, but based upon what Christ has earned for you. That means he's saying to you, if you're to love your wife as Christ has loved you, it means you treat her as if she was a perfect wife, even though you know she's not, because that's how Christ has treated you. You treat her as God would have you treat her. And God has made you to be the one who initiates in love. A lot of men hang back, especially if there's a conflict. They wait for the wife to come to him. And uh, We love, 1 John 4.19, because he first loved us. Jesus initiated in love and we responded. And we as husbands are be the ones who initiate in peacemaking, initiate in affection, initiate in relationship and conversation. That love is also to be a love that comes from the heart. Tomorrow morning I'm going to be preaching from Hebrews 12, so that's on my mind. And it talks about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. When Jesus went to the cross, even though that was horribly painful for him, he was looking ahead to future joy. What was that joy? It was because he loved us. And that was worth going to the cross to obey the Father and to have us as his bride. And so it's not just enough to outwardly go through the motions. God wants you to love her from the heart and to rejoice even in the good that you may do for your wife as Christ has done for you. So you are to love her in a way very different from the world, to be totally committed to showing love. And then you is unconditionally sacrifice your own interests to meet her needs. Verse 25 again, he gave himself up for her. Jesus' love was a costly love that is demonstrated on the cross. And we husbands have an incredible standard to which we're called, don't we? Back in verse 2 of chapter 5, the same chapter, he says, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And the hymn says, From heaven he came and sought her, to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. A passage I love that talks about how we're to treat each other more generally is in Philippians 2, where we're told 
In verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now that all sounds like good morality up until then, right? Put others first. How can I do that? Well, you need to keep reading. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Paul says, when you get married, what you're promising to do is to sacrifice yourself for her. And it's not just in the potential scenario that she's tied to the railroad tracks and you're going to stand there and try to get her untied and if you get run over by the train, unlikely to happen, okay? Okay. You know, the mugger comes and you stand between her and the gun and good for you to do that. But the real scenario is that you've got to get up at five in the morning to go to work and the baby's crying at three in the morning. And you're tempted to say, would you take care of that, please? And you sacrifice your sleep to go get the baby and to bring the baby to the wife. It means that she has some jobs around the house she wants done, and you love playing golf on Saturdays. And you give up the Saturday, give up the Saturday golf game to do the honeydew list for her. Or maybe you come to a marriage conference. Some of you guys are here as an act of sacrifice. I realize that. You wait another year to upgrade your cell phone so that she can buy the kids some nicer clothes because they're growing out of the old ones. You give up your rights. Um, Jesus gave up his rights to serve us. Um, one of the biggest problems I have in counseling situations is many men come in who are experts on Ephesians 5.22 who have never studied Ephesians 5.25. And in a counseling situation, when a man starts quoting to me and to his wife, wives, submit to your husbands, I know I'm in trouble. Because men like that often get the idea that somehow God has appointed them king and that they've been given this authority, so we're going to spend the money the way I want to spend the money, we're going to do what I want to do, we're going to watch what I want to watch on TV, and everybody around the house is going to just take care of my needs because I've been made the king. That is a hideous, gross distortion of headship. If you want to know what headship looks like, in John chapter 13, famous passage, where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. I don't have time to read the whole passage, but it's interesting how the passage begins in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself, poured water into the basin, and you know the story. But What's amazing how John recorded this is John tells us what was in Jesus' mind before he washed the disciples' feet. What was he thinking about? How great he is. He he is God the Son who has come forth from the Father and he's going to return and ascend back to heaven and seated at the right hand of God. And and yet, in light of his greatness and his authority, what does he do? Does he say, you, wash my feet. I'm really important. He does the opposite. He, He uses his authority to serve. And that is a picture I think every husband ought to have in mind. I'll make it concrete. Okay, you've had a long day at work. You've found the thorns and the thistles all over the place in whatever vocation you have. 
And as you're driving home later than you'd hoped, you're thinking about your own comfort and your own rest and how you'd like to be left alone so you could watch some sports or you'd like to play a video game or you just like some peace and quiet. And then you remember Jesus washing his disciples' feet not long before he was going to go to the cross. You say, how can I serve my family tonight? Lord, help me tonight to make this a great night for my wife who's probably really tired from her day and the kids. And help me make this a nice time for the kids. And help me to be like Jesus and to sacrifice my rights and my desires. And I've, I talk to men sometimes, they pray before on the freeway or as they pull up to the home. That's the picture that we should have in mind, how Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It means doing more than your share. Some, some husbands are excellent at math and justice and fairness. Okay, I do this part and she does this part. And I'm already doing like 60% of the stuff here. And, and so she should do a little more, not less. I shouldn't be helping her because I'm already doing more. You may not really be as good at math as you think you are in terms of what it's like to be her. But the point being, if you're loving in a Christ-like way, Jesus didn't treat you according to what's fair. Aren't you glad? He took upon your guilt, your burdens, and willingly bore them for you. In my own life, the most powerful picture of this is the man who's the most influence on me when I was a kid growing up was my grandfather. And I remember when I'd go stay with him and my grandmother and she'd make a nice meal and he'd been working all day in downtown Washington, D.C., came to the suburbs, terrible traffic. He gets in 6.37 at night. He's a tired man. Actually, he was about my present age. <laughs> so I think about it. He was old. And... Um, <laughs> But she'd make the dinner, and then he would get up from dinner and wash the dishes by hand. And I'm thinking, she has no kids to take care of. All she, she played bridge today. This doesn't seem right. But he loved her so much. He, he wasn't calculating on his way home, what would be fair tonight? He wanted to show love to her beyond, and I remember how much she adored him. That's, that's how you win your wife. See, it's that kind of love. We love because he first loved us. If, if you want your wife to be submissive, when you love her in a Christ-like, self-sacrificing way, you want her to have a sense, I don't deserve to be treated this well. Best would be, oh, I think I see his love for me really reminds me of how Jesus has loved me. So that's you. Unconditionally sacrifice your interest to meet her needs. Then L is limit yourself to her alone. And back in verse 25, for whom did Christ die? Husbands of your wives, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus has a special love for his bride, the church. He died for us. He gives us many privileges and benefits. And in the same way, a husband must remain faithful to his wife. Obviously, in terms of his body, to be faithful and to her and her alone, but his body includes his eyes, what he looks at, pornography, other women. And I don't think men adequately understand how devastating it is for a wife to be walking through the mile with your husband and some girl walks by not wearing enough clothes and to watch your husband do this. Or even worse, to walk in on your husband and he puts down the screen real fast or he hides it and you realize he's looking at porn again. That is dishonoring to her. It's a breach of the sexual relationship of marriage. It, it can tempt her to feel demeaned, insecure, 
and the flesh is battling. There's nothing about being married that makes this easy. It's a spiritual battle, and God can help you. But it's also with your affections. There are some men who are flirts, even in our churches. Men who like to hug too much and too hard. Men who make eye contact and they're funny and they're clever and their eyes light up with other women. And the wife is sitting there watching that and saying, I wish he looked at me that way. Um, She sees through him. It's not harmless. Another way your, your love is to be limited to your wife is in your devotion, not just other women. There's, a, there's an old Garth Brooks song. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> his eyes are cold and restless. His wounds have almost healed. And she'd give half a Texas just to change the way he feels. She knows his love's in Tulsa. And she knows he's going to go. Well, it ain't no woman flesh and blood. It's that dang old rodeo. See, it's not just other women that can make your wife tempted to be jealous and feel neglected. It could be your love of sports, your obsession with video games, um, even your career, even church involvement. So many women feel neglected. Caroline has a talk on our website called The Lonely Wife. And women complain that they cannot get their husband's time and attention. If you're limiting your love to her, it's not just staying away from other women. It's being devoted to her and not let less important things get in the way. Uh, Many years ago, I actually dealt with a couple where the wife got so sinfully angry that she actually threw his computer into their swimming pool. I'm not saying that's justified. (laughs) But I'm saying that she was jealous of that computer as much as if it was a woman. So your love is to be limited to her. You're to be devoted to her. And then I irresistibly draw her with a love that purifies. Continuing in Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27. And these verses explicitly describe how Jesus changes us and how we can change our wives. So he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus made himself irresistible to you, didn't he? He drew you to himself. You would have never come if he hadn't done that. In Ephesians 2, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. When you were dead in sin, Jesus gave you new spiritual life. He made himself attractive to you. He drew you to himself. And now Jesus didn't just draw you initially in faith, but he is committed to your continued holiness. Paul says in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's reflected in the verses I just read in Ephesians 5 as As Jesus gave himself up for the church, he wants her to be holy, to be sanctified. And it's it's pictured as a cleansing process. So when when you're converted through justification, you're declared righteous. But then you know you're not yet as holy as you will be, should be. There's this ongoing process as to the word of God and the public ministry of the word in the church and 
trials that God is continually working to make you more like Jesus because he wants a beautiful and glorious bride. And he says, that's how you're to change your wife. There are many men who try to change their wives by criticizing them, by making selfish demands upon them. The goal should be, first of all, it's not so much about yourself, but it's to make her more beautiful for Jesus. Now, you'll benefit from that as she becomes more godly. And the beauty treatment is the Word of God, washing with the water of the Word. As a husband, God calls you to actively pursue the spiritual growth of your wife. How can you do that? Pray with her. Read and discuss the Bible together. Don't think it has to be some big deal where you spend an hour and a half every night doing that. Five minutes would be infinitely more than most men do. It might be infinitely more than you've ever done. It would be good. Make sure that she has enough free time so that she has time for her own reading of the Word of God and prayer, that she's not so overwhelmed and busy. Keep her clean by protecting her from the pollution of the world in terms of the entertainment choices you make, things that might be defiling for her, things that might be against her conscience. And never pressure her to do something against her conscience. Scripture says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And if her conscience is not good with this, don't try to force her into a situation that would be against that conscience. And then positively to encourage her to develop the potential God has given her in the home and even outside the home. And one of the sad things I've seen is selfish husbands who don't want the wife to use her spiritual gifts at all to be a blessing to the church. And they're resentful if she has to be there 10 minutes after the service is over or 15 minutes before the service starts to help in some way in Proverbs 31, in this, you know, the, the ch- famous chapter of the excellent wife, this woman is out there helping the poor, you know, stretching out her hands, extending her hand to the poor, stretches out her hands to the needy. The husband is giving her the freedom to use her abilities, her gifts, and even the family resources to help those in need. So you want to encourage her. And yet, sometimes that's going to be some sacrifice for you when you might rather her be serving you all the time to give her opportunity to serve the Lord and to grow spiritually. God holds you responsible for the spiritual growth of your wife. And uh, something I thought of way back when I was married over 35 years ago is that at the wedding, not only did my wife's father entrust her to me, but God entrusted Caroline to me. And that my job is to give her back better than I got her. My job is to be a spiritual leader who would wash her with the word and pray over her and pray for her. Now, I'm not at all saying I've done that perfectly. God has shown great mercy to me. But one day, I will have to give her back. One of us is going to die. And I want to have led her in such a way that she has benefited spiritually and grown spiritually because of our relationship. One way to do this is that some men need to have the courage to make decisions that go against the preferences of your wife. Uh, Sadly, many men are selfish and and demand their own way when they should give in, and then they give in when they should hold their ground. In, In the garden, Eve gave the fruit to the man. He shouldn't have eaten it. He listened to his wife when he shouldn't have listened to his wife. Later on, when 
Abram and Sarah can't have kids. And Sarah says, go be with my mate Hagar. Abraham should not have listened to that, should he? He listened when he should have stood up. And, and there are many men who value their own comfort and peace so much, they don't have the courage for the sake of holiness to stand up to the wife when she's wrong. The wife wants something you can't afford, and it's not in the budget, and go deeply into debt just to keep her happy. Or it could be in terms of where you go to church, uh, other important decisions. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but the one who trusts in God will be exalted. And I've counseled many men, and one of their besetting sins is they're afraid of their wives. And they're not willing to make a decision which they believe to be godly, lest they incur the wrath of their wife, or the displeasure, or the disapproval of the wife. Part of purifying her is to stand up to her when she's wrong, do so gently and lovingly. And I also believe that few women really respect a man they can control anyway. Most women want a husband who will be strong. And then the last in our T-U-L-I-P is persevere. Persevere in providing for her every need. And we'll spend some more time on that. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So this is going back to Genesis, really, isn't it? When Adam says, this is now flesh of my flesh. And Paul is saying, when you get married, you're made one. And you are one with your wife, and she is part of yourself. You should love her as you love your own body. And it's, it's not as high a motive. You know, the earlier chapter, love her as Christ has loved you, is, is the highest motive. But he's almost saying, if you're not getting that part, even out of self-interest, she's part of yourself. Any man who would abuse his own body is crazy. And Paul is also making an assumption, I know you love yourself. You may be losing some hair on the top. You may be adding some girth to the middle. But you still care for you. You still feed your body. If it hurts, you go to the doctor. It's the only body you're ever going to get. So you, you take care of it. Well, your wife is the only wife you're ever going to get. And even if she's not perfect physically, spiritually, emotionally, you love her unconditionally as you care for yourself. She's the only one you're going to have. And then you provide for her. He says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. As the church is the body of Jesus, Jesus provides for the church. And if we had time, we could go through the first five chapters of Ephesians. And, and what has he done? He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's given us an inheritance that can't be taken away. We've been adopted. We've been raised up and seated with him. We're fellow heirs. We're members of his body, partakers of the promise. We have bold access to God. We've been given gifts. We've been given a new nature. Jesus has given everything we need, hasn't he? He's richly provided for us. And we as husbands should have the same idea. When it says nourish your wife, it means generously take care of her. One aspect of this is that we as men should be willing to do what it takes to provide for our families. If that means working extra jobs, getting more training, working longer hours, 
And one of the deterioration points of our culture in the last several years that I've noticed is there are fewer and fewer men who are prepared to take on the responsibility of a family, or even just they, they lack the motivation. A lot of guys want to be married, or at least they want a woman, but in order to have one, you have to be able to provide and be committed to do what it takes. I've also seen men who I believe will put excessive pressure on the wife, on his wife, to be a major provider in the family, or even not wanting to have kids because he wants her income to continue. Now, I'm not saying women can't work outside the home. We'll get into that afterwards. I think there's a, there can be a place for that. The woman in Proverbs 31 is bringing an income. But the man needs to realize that his calling is to be the primary provider. And that, as Titus 2 says, she's to be a worker at home, that part of his job is to make sure she can be free to pursue that calling. I'm, I'm supervising right now a uh, counselor who's doing a case that's in another culture thousands of miles away on another continent. And one of the cases I just read this week was a situation in which uh, a woman, it's almost like a tribal situation in this church, but the woman has been the main provider and they have one kid and another on the way and she just told her husband, I'm not going to work anymore. You need to start working. And his excuse was, well, I'm doing ministry. Yeah, but you're not getting paid. And it's actually going pretty well that he's getting counsel to take on these responsibilities and don't even use your desire to do ministry as an excuse not to provide for your family when your wife is yearning to be in the home. To provide for your wife means to be generous with her. Some husbands are very stingy financially. Some wives are afraid to spend money on themselves uh, there are women who are going around with socks so thin you could read a book through them, and they feel like they have to get permission. Uh, it's good to make a budget. It's good to work within the budget to make sure there's enough money for groceries and mortgage and all the things. Uh, but it's good to be generous to whatever extent you can be. Uh, early in our marriage, uh, we were barely making enough to get by, and but we created a category of mad money, we called it, for Caroline where there's a little segment of our budget that she could do whatever she wanted to with it. And we've actually continued over the years to build this up. And, of course, what my wife, guess what my wife does when she has the mad money? She buys gifts for other people and does things for them. But even then, that takes some tension out of the marriage because that's hers to do with whatever she wants to do. And I don't, it doesn't have to be my idea. Uh, Another way you provide for her is simply to take care of what needs to be done. Don't procrastinate. For some of you, uh, your wives are really struggling because there are things that need to be done around the house. And she may be failing because she's been nagging you about these certain things and she's got this list, a honeydew list. But you need to see it the way she sees it because her processing, your processing is this could wait till next week, next month. March Madness is about to begin. When that's over, we'll think about it. Her thinking is, if he loved me, he would fix the bathroom door. He would repair this. He would get this thing going. And she needs to show some grace, but it's also true that you, show, you make deposits in the love bank by taking what matters to her and acting upon it quickly without procrastinating. Then meeting her emotional needs. 
Uh, you'll have men and they'll say, well, why is my wife complaining? We drive a nice car. She can use the credit card however she wants. We live in a nice house. It's because she, she didn't just want to marry a credit card at an ATM. She wanted a relationship. She wanted friendship. And sometimes men who are good providers are not very good friends. She has probably greater needs than you do for connection, for friendship, for communication. She needs to know what's in your own heart and for you to share your inner thoughts with her. She wants this level of intimacy. And you don't want your wife to be lonely. You want her to be fulfilled emotionally. She has need for romance. How sad it is when there's more romance before the marriage than after. There should be more after the marriage. She wants to feel cherished. And then to meet her sexual needs. 1 Corinthians 7 says your body belongs to her. One aspect of that is I believe that your wife has the right to have kids if she wants to have kids. That's part of the deal. When you got married, is part of her fulfillment as a woman and her role that God is, for which God has designed her is to have kids. And it means you're willing to make sacrifices so those desires can be fulfilled. But it's also, she does have sexual needs for closeness. And something that's been kind of bizarre to me over the last several years is there are far more cases these days that I've had in the counseling office where the wife is the one complaining that the husband is not paying attention to her sexually. And for your wife, this is a big area where she, she wants to feel attractive. She wants to feel that you're directing all of your sexual interest towards her. This is very important for her not to be neglected. And she'll also be tempted to be fearful. If you're not going to her, uh, you might be going elsewhere. And then meet her spiritual needs. Um, as I said, just, uh, just to pray with her. For some of the wives, just to be prayed with at the end of the day or to be prayed for or a verse here or there would just encourage their hearts so much. And then it says, we're to nourish and cherish. Some of that involves understanding her. She's different from you. First Peter 3, 7, I've already quoted, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Some men joke that it's hard to understand women. And I do not deny the difficulty thereof. My wife will kind of tease me sometimes when it's like, which Caroline will wake up today? The, you know, they're all good, but some are better than others. Um, but I, there's no way I can predict exactly which one I'll get. But that's part of the excitement of being married. But, but just to realize... Don't just treat her like she's another guy, like you. She's very different from you. And your life from Scripture is to study her. In your uh, handouts, we have 50 questions to ask your wife. It'd be a great couple of dates to go out and ask her these questions. In Lou Priolo's book on uh, being a husband, he describes, he has a bunch of questions that are really heart-searching in terms of what would it take from your standpoint to make our marriage wonderful. What are three things about me you would prefer to change that could make you happier? What are some things you'd like for me to take care of? I actually remember reading that for the first time and taking Caroline out, and I was trembling. You know, after 20 years of marriage, of the answers I might hear. She was gracious. But you want to know these things. It means to be patient with her and gentle with her. Colossians 3, 19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. 
a lot of men are walking around with bitterness and anger towards their wives that is not Christ-like and is not gracious. They're judging their wives because their wives are sinners and are not perfect. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't treat you that way? Jesus treats us better than our sins deserve. And if there's bitterness in your heart, don't fool yourself to say it's your wife's fault and she needs to change for that bitterness to go away. That bitterness is a choice you are making to deal with her according to law and not grace. If you love her in a Christ-like way, the bitterness will go away. But it's a big problem, a big problem for many, for many men. Some husbands are very impatient, they scold, and it disheartens the wife. We are to be gentle. She is a more delicate vessel, not that she is less valuable. She's the crystal and you're the plastic cup, perhaps. But crystal needs to be handled gently. And then you treat her with respect. In Proverbs 31, again, there's a lot about the husband there. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. First uh, Peter says she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. Just because God put you in charge does not mean you're better than she is. You're absolutely equal spiritually. And some men, again, the ones who are the experts on Ephesians 5.22 about submission and have never studied Ephesians 5.25, they can be very demeaning. They can be micromanaging. Uh, My heart is broken because 30 years ago, I had one of our closest couples that were our friends I could see when we were together how much he micromanaged her and he kind of put her down and treated her as if she was stupid. And later she found a man who thought she wasn't so stupid. And there's no excuse for what she did, but my friend has plenty of responsibility for not having honored his wife and and treating her in such a demeaning way. Leadership is not just making decisions and telling her what to do, by the way. When it says in Proverbs 31, the heart of her husband trusts in her, it means... When you're going to make a decision, if you're a wise husband, you're going to realize God has given me a helper. One way she helps me is she sees things I don't, find out what she thinks. Yeah, you've got to make the final decision, which is a big burden on you. But try to understand why. And then just to be affectionate with her. Uh, Not just sex, but holding hands, speaking kind words. Yes, flowers and candy, or whatever else she likes. And then express appreciation to her. At the end of Proverbs 31, you know, many women have done well, but you excel them all, he says. And then Peter warns, if you don't treat your wife as you should, what's going to happen? Your prayers will be hindered. If you don't treat your wife in an understanding way, if you're not being gracious to her, it's going to affect your relationship to God. And I'll go back to it. It's because you've disconnected yourself from the gospel. You've become the unmerciful servant where you've been forgiven this $10,000 debt and then you're judging her for whatever denarii you think she owes, that's not how Christ deals with you. And then S, it's tulips, steadfastly endure when marriage is difficult. Some guys ask, well, what if your wife is hard to love? We love because he first loved us. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The harder she is to love, the greater opportunity you have to be like Jesus. And I remember speaking to a man and thinking of his wife, and and she's had a hard life. She had a very difficult upbringing. She had very judgmental, legalistic parents. And I said, do you realize this woman has never in her life been loved by anyone in a Christ-like way? She's been judged. She's been mistreated. She's been scolded. 
No one has ever said, I just choose to love you no matter what. And who knows what transformation might take place in her life. That's how you can change her, according to the Bible. To love her so much more than she deserves and pray that God would use your love for her in a transforming way. Well, what if you don't have loving feelings towards your wife? And there's a story of some couple going into the counselor saying, well, we don't love each other. The right answer is, well, you have to learn. But again, if you lack love for your wife, it's not just the horizontal thing where if she's not doing enough for me, otherwise I'd love her. Go back to Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, not as she loves you. If I'm not loving my wife and I don't feel in love with my wife, then I need to go back and meditate upon the love of Christ for me. And to be overwhelmed by God's grace towards me and, and revel in that love and relish that love, that will fill the tank that I can love her in ways that maybe she doesn't deserve. Well, what if your wife won't follow your leadership? And this is a really tough one. If your kids living in the home won't follow your leadership, you've got some weapons, right? Another seminar for another time. But you can discipline them. You can spank them. You can take things away from them. The Bible never authorizes you to do any of that to your wife. And again, some husbands grossly perverting their headship are cruel and domineering and abusive. And if you talk to a guy and he says, well, I really want my wife to follow me and to do this certain thing, and she won't, what can I do? And I said, almost nothing. You can't drag her by the hair and make her go in the car with you to the church you want to go to or to the seminar you want her to attend or whatever else it may be. You might want to understand why she doesn't want to follow you. You might look at getting the log out of your own eye. But sometimes a husband has to say to his wife, I really want you to do this. But if you won't, it's now between you and the Lord. I can't make you. And it could rise to such a level if she professes to be a Christian where you might start in the process getting help from the church, Matthew 18, um, depending on exactly what the issue is, like extreme overspending or something like that. Anyway, to summarize, uh, husbands, go buy tulips. Totally commit yourself to loving her. Unconditionally sacrifice your interest to meet her needs. Limit your love to her alone. Irresistibly draw her with a love that purifies and persevere in meeting her every need. Just a few closing words. We have some single men here. You want to get married because you think somebody's going to take care of you? You're not ready yet. (laughs) Understand what marriage is. There are too many boys in the bodies of men who are not ready for marriage. Marriage is about sacrificially living for someone else and caring for them as Christ has cared for you. And it's not always going to be easy. And for single women, it sounds romantic to get Prince Charming or Mr. Darcy to sweep you off your feet. But I've counseled in situations where a month into the marriage, the so-called Mr. Darcy or Prince Charming wasn't so charming a few months after the wedding. What you need to look for is godliness. You need to find a man who will give you tulips. You need to find a man who knows the love of Christ, who loves Christ, is amazed by the love of Christ. Study what the scripture says about what a husband should be 
and don't settle for less. Now, for married women, pray for your husband. Don't criticize. Any effort he makes, if you've got like a little pot there and there's this little bitty tulip stem sticking out, water it, fertilize it, (laughs) encourage it. Rather than criticizing the fact it's not as nice as the tulips next door. And for us as as married men, before you can love your wife in a Christ-like way, you need to be in submission to your head, Jesus. And if you're under his authority and your life is consumed with his great love for you, you will find joy in loving her and giving yourself away. Amen.